The pandemic represents the most unique economic challenge of our time. Economists are scrambling to figure out what went wrong in the response. Will we continue to have problems post-pandemic? Let's find out. I'm Joshua Miller, and welcome to Think Critical. Due to us recording at home this week, audio quality may dip at times. Thank you for your patience and for listening to Think Critical. Komal Srikumar is president of Srikumar Global Strategies, a macroeconomic consulting firm that guides sovereign wealth funds and multinational corporations. He previously worked as the head of the trust company The West's Global Strategies Department. He is a senior fellow at the Milken Institute and has written numerous research reports and op-eds for news institutions. Hello, Dr. Sri Kumar, and welcome to the Think Critical Podcast. Today we'll be discussing COVID-19 and its effect on the global economy. Great, and uh, thank you for inviting me, Joshua. I look forward to participating. Thank you, Dr. Sri Kumar. Very sure this will be an extremely enlightening experience for our listeners. So, Dr. Srikumar, you've long pointed out how market data is increasingly divorced from economic realities due to such things as quantitative easing and the Federal Reserve's protection of bonds. Do you think emerging data supports your conclusions, and what reforms will you make to solve the problems you posit exist in your conclusions? Uh, Joshua, you have several parts to your questions, so let me begin by talking about how the changes in policy have actually vitiated or affected the market numbers and then go on to talk in terms of what can be done about it. Uh, This really is not a new phenomenon. It didn't just start with the COVID crisis, but that was the Federal Reserve's response to the 2008 financial crisis. The response to it was to keep interest rates very low. It is often referred to as the zero interest rate policy or ZIRP, where the interest rates were brought down to zero as a way of prompting you to spend more of your cash in the equity market for you and to buy uh, different goods. Therefore, you would be boosting the economy. That was the idea. But what actually happened was that the zero interest rate policy essentially meant that people who depended on bank interest income were impoverished. Their interest income went to zero. Retired people would have to depend more on bank interest income rather than on equities. They were also deprived of their earnings. 
And so what happened during the 2009 to 2019 decade, Joshua, was that you had a situation where wages rose very little, even as the stock market surged. So the, that was the problem with those 10 years. Now with the COVID, my estimate is that we have had about fiscal and monetary stimulus by the Federal Reserve and the Treasury amounting to more than 50% of the US GDP. Think about it. The US GDP is $21 trillion, and I think the total stimulus is over $12 trillion US dollars worth. That's an incredible you, amount. Sorry? That's an incredible amount, right? Incredible amount, and it is all thrown into the market at the same point in time. So in answer to your question, what did it do to share prices? You don't know what the real share price is. How much is reflecting the fundamentals of the economy and how much is due to the liquidity that is flowing in the market? The Fed went one step further which further distorted markets in a way it hadn't done in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. And that is, it stepped in and said it is going to buy high yield bonds, sometimes known as junk bonds, in the form of, of an ETF or an exchange traded fund. So if you were buying high yield bonds in order to increase your interest income, you're going to be competing with the Federal Reserve, which is also going to buy the same asset. It is not you competing with another market player, but you are competing with the Federal Reserve itself. It is not part of the mandate of the Federal Reserve to enter the market. So that also meant that the companies whose bonds will do very well are not necessarily the ones with good management, good earnings prospects, but the ones which have caught the eye of the Federal Reserve. And that is a massive distortion. So those are some of the examples for you. So do you think this is akin to a new form of central planning or a new form of some sort of aggressive Keynesianism where the market's subjected to government control instead of being subjected to uh, fundamental forces found within natural equilibrium and market mechanics? I, I think this is a form you, I think you referred to a Keynesianism or some form of market control by the state. I think that's what it is because the state has essentially entered the market and we don't have it so far, but let's assume that the equity market takes a 10 to 20 to 30% tumble in the next few months because there is a sec secondary wave of the coronavirus crisis. Let's assume that. If you did that, the Federal Reserve would say, oops, this is going to put an end to the recovery that we had been expecting. We are going to enter the market and we are going to buy equities. And so think about what is happening. Then some of the largest companies in the United States may be partly owned by the US government. And you then say, isn't that what it was done in the Soviet Union? where the forms of production were in the state hands. And that is why you do not want to let the government interfere in the operation of the private market. Uh, so uh, what's the solution to this? Um, should we return the Fed to its original mandate? Milton Friedman proposed a 
Federal Reserve computer that couldn't interfere in the economy. Uh, Scott Sumner proposes uh, NGDP targeting. Uh, so what's the solution? I would say uh, there are two, it's a two-fold solution. Think about what the mandate was in the 1913 document, which established the Federal Reserve just uh, over, over a century ago. And at that time, and since then, we have clarified the Federal Reserve has two mandates, to maintain a stable inflation rate, and second, in order to keep the unemployment rate very low and keep the economy growing at a steady rate. Now, the Fed has not managed to raise the unemployment rate and keep it at around 2%. We have failed in that mandate. The economic growth after 2008 remained near 2%, very low level given the potential of the US economy. We failed there as well. Having failed in the two mandates, essentially the Fed took it upon itself to respond whenever the equity buyers had a cry for help. But that's not the mandate of the Federal Reserve. So that should end. You have to look to see that the mandate is not to look at the share prices. It is not to look at high yield bond prices. You should be looking at where the economy is headed, where the Federal Reserve needs to help. You said, what is the solution? There are two ways. One, I know that you're a fan of Milton Friedman's. And what Professor Friedman said was to say that you should be looking in terms of letting the money grow automatically from year to year to year at the interest at the inflation rate you want to keep plus the, the rate at which the economy is going to be growing. And let's assume the U.S. economy grows at 3% per year and you want an inflation rate of 2% per year. When you put them both together, what we call nominal GDP or demand for cash holding increases by about 5% per year. And if you increase money supply by the same 5% per year, it is in equilibrium with the increase in demand. What you have then is the money supply, money demand grow at the same pace. What is the problem with the current setup? Professor Friedman said that himself, that you have a long lag between the impact of monetary policy and what it is taken for. So if the Fed is taking a measure to boost economic growth and economic growth picks up by itself, then when the monetary policy has its impact, the economy may no longer need help. But the Fed cannot predict whether its policy is going to have an impact after six months, 12 months, 18 months, or 24 months. So there is a problem because you can't predict when it's going to have an impact. So for that reason also, you want to keep the money growth growing at a steady pace. And uh, one of the professors on my PhD committee in Columbia was a gentleman by name John Taylor, who is currently at Stanford University Hoover Institution. And Professor Taylor said he had something called a Taylor rule to determine the pace at which the money growth should be taking place. 
So he wouldn't vary it from month to month, quarter to quarter, depending on what he thinks is happening. He would let it grow at a steady pace. And that is less destructive to the economy than the Fed deciding that it knows what the economy needs and to keep switching policy and having an impact at an inopportune moment. It's interesting that you mentioned those long and variable lags were described by Milton Friedman. I'm sure you're familiar with a guy named Scott Sumner. He's the founder of the school known as Market Monitorism, and he was the guy who helped engineer the best parts of Ben Bernanke's response to the 2008 crisis, at least in a lot of experts' opinions. Um, because, you know, he advocates for NGDP targeting, which is something you're describing right now. Um, he talks about as being the most accurate way to make sure the economy grows and to match up monetary growth and um, the economic growth. Now, he doesn't think that those lags exist, especially now for a quote-unquote much faster economy. We could sort of get away with not growing things at a certain rate. He says that the Fed has more than enough tools to keep a certain target and maintain it day to day. We've been successful sort of with inflation, so he says that we should set an NGDP target instead. He says that it comes with a lot of Freeman's ideas of how the monetary growth and economic growth interacted without having to rely on these long and variable lags that Milton Freeman says existed or she says does not exist. So do you think that the Federal Reserve could just get away with just targeting NGDP or do you think it needs to go take a more steady rate approach? Uh, I um, think that if it is NGDP that they are targeting rather than the inflation rate, I don't think they are going to have any more success. They can ask if the only thing I think would be close to getting a success is that the NGDP target that they mentioned should remain fixed, meaning you're talking about 5% per year not a situation where you say, you know, I decide now that the NGDP growth should be 7%. Next year, it's okay for me to accept only 3% because I do believe that the lags are quite significant. Let me give you an example. We have had 10 years of near zero interest rate policy. 2017, the Fed made a half-hearted attempt to start to increase interest rates. But then very soon with the COVID crisis coming on, they have given up on the target. We have gone back to zero. The first time around when we had the zero interest rates, you found a whole lot of low income earners were essentially the purchasing power was drastically reduced. So if the Fed thought it was going to have an impact on the stock market, and boost the economy from 2008 to 2010. And Chairman Bernanke said that he was, this was a temporary policy is what he said about quantitative easing. We find that the impact it has had on income distribution, the deterioration in incomes of low income groups compared with the higher income groups are worsened in the 10 years. So it's not a short lag. And it is not a predictable lag either. And if you look at what has happened in terms of the, the, the policy and what it has done, it had an impact far beyond what you would anticipate would happen purely with inflation. In this case, what it meant was 
that there is a measure called Gini coefficient, which measures the extent of inequality of income. The closer that figure is to zero, you have more perfect distribution of income. The closer it is to number one, the worst, the, the worst situation with income distribution. Let's just leave it that without getting more technical. And in the case of the United States, by 2019, it was the country among the developed countries, the worst income distribution with the exception of Chile and Mexico, which were even worse. And you have to ask the question, how did we get there to with, for such a bad income distribution? And it was partly because of the policies that were followed in the previous 10 years. Uh, other than reforming the Fed, what other solutions exist to fix our Gini coefficient and our slow economic growth? I know that Piketty proposed a international progressive tax on wealth. You know, he's very into the Gini coefficient. And I also know that you've, you've advocated in the past for increased immigration to uh, help encourage economic growth, especially skilled immigration. So are those, are those potential solutions to these problems? Uh, I'm First of all, I'm not uh, in agreement with Thomas Piketty in terms of what the solution should be. I think if you increase the, the tax rate substantially, as in fact has been done in his native France, for example, and even though France is a great country to go to, you enjoy it for tourism, but it is not a shining light in terms of rate of economic growth, technological innovation, changes, that's not where France shines at all. And so you really have to ask the question, it doesn't come out of France with the policies that are recommended. And they have very high taxes. And that has not helped the French economy any bit. I think what needs to be done, Joshua, here, is the fact that the high unemployment rate the high structural unemployment, the income inequality are all factors which are caused by structural elements. What, does, what do I mean by that? If you have a need for carpenters and you go looking for a job and your skill is in ancient Greek history, and I have nothing against ancient Greek history, by the way, but if that is where your skill level is and the carpenters are where the demand is, you're not going to get a job. To get a position, in addition to immigration of skilled carpenters who can come and take over the job and increase the productivity of the United States, the other thing that you need to do is that you need more people to be trained as carpenters. And here, I am a fan of the system that was developed in Germany in 2003. And that goes directly to answer your question. In 2003, Germany was known as the sick man of Europe. You wouldn't believe it today when they have done so well in you know, subsequent years, but it was in pretty bad shape. And what the chancellor at that time did was to tell the workers if you agree to get practical training as a welder, as a carpenter, as an apprentice at a less uh, lower wage than you're getting today, we will give a subsidy to your employer to train you. One year from now, you will have more training. 
that same employer would want to hire you full time because he knows who you are, he has worked with you, and you have developed the skills. And that was a major reason why the skills were developed in Germany. And despite the fact that the Europe as a whole is suffering from a drop in population, Germany is one of those which finds its way to get the skilled immigrants to come into the country. In the United States, in the last three or four years, we have especially suffered with immigration being held back. For example, there is a visa system known as the H-1B in the United States. It's a skilled professional. And you bring professionals from foreign countries. They are already educated. They are already trained. You bring them in. You give them a visa for five years. And they can bring their spouse. They can bring their family. They can stay here. And they increase the productivity immediately because they come there with the education elsewhere. Think about it. A foreign country paid to educate them. You get them free of charge. And then once you employ them, they are here to increase production in the United States. But that is being restricted very, very sharply right now. Visa, so in other words, you're not going to have, have that taken place. If you construct walls, both physical walls and visa-related walls, you're only going to harm yourself. Um, I know that uh, a lot of senators are proposing currently um, a sort of importing a lot of the skilled labor which exists in, within Hong Kong to the United States. Is that a plan that you can get on board with? Oh, to try to get the Hong Kong people to come to the United States? Yes. Yes, in fact, I was just reading today uh, that the UK is already going to give a quick passage to UK citizenship for the people in Hong Kong, especially the younger ones who are ready to come over to the UK. I think something like that, I think, needs to be done in the United States. And Hong Kong is a place with a lot of skill. And if as a result of the new national security law that mainland China is imposing on Hong Kong, if that is going to make more of the younger professionals in Hong Kong want to immigrate, by all means, we should take advantage of that. The, the, the people immigrating would be very happy and the United States would benefit as well. Yeah, my, my co-host Greg, a lot of his family lives in Hong Kong and a lot of their younger cousins are all getting their passports to Britain now, and they they all had they all have professions as like doctors and lawyers. And looking at the state of the UK economy, I can't imagine they're going to do anything bad to it. I, I you know, you, now that Boris has cut down on um, on immigration from the EU, the British economy is really going to have to find a new source. And I think that Hong Kong is one of the the best sources possible due to the skill in you know the skill of the labor in Hong Kong, and also because of moral reasons to protect them from the CCP. Right, right. You are absolutely right. One is, again, uh, the skill base, which is in Hong Kong. And don't forget something else. Hong Kong, until 1997, was a British colony. And as a result of that, similar to many other countries in the Commonwealth today, Eastern African countries, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, all of those which were British colonies, they have a knowledge of the English language which makes it very easy for those people to assimilate into the British or American society. 
lot faster than it would be for mainland Chinese, for example, to do the same thing. Yeah, like I know that Teddy Roosevelt, he, you know, he as much as he was pro-immigration, his one big qualm about increased immigration was that he thought the United States would function best having everybody speak one language. Uh, so I, I do, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's that because an immigrant speaks the same language as the country they're immigrating to, it, it makes um, the whole immigration process so much more better for both parties and easier. The point, there's almost no downsides. Okay, I want to return to the um, the question of um, economic, you know, the stock market not really being a great economic indicator anymore. Um, what would you think would be a better indicator for market performance and for the economic performance of the of the nation other than the stock market, considering the factors that we talked about earlier? Um, let me let the more and more the Fed intervenes in particular markets. As soon as I tell you, Joshua, that this is one good signal that you can depend on, tomorrow it may become a bad signal because the Fed is going to enter that market also and buy and sell securities there. So that, with that note of caution being expressed, I would say to you that the U.S. Treasury market has been a better signal of the economy than equities have done. They accurately predicted the 2001 recession, which was a short, short recession from March to November. They also anticipated the 2007 to 2009 recession. And but when I say predicted, I mean that the 10-year Treasury yield comes down, which is an indication, indicator of a rush toward a safe haven. And also, we refer to something called the yield curve inversion. Normally, the 10-year yield should be more than what you get in terms of yield for a two-year Treasury security. But when you're so afraid of a recession, you go and surge and buy into 10-year securities, pushing that yield down. And that goes below the two-year yield. That happened as well before the 2008 recession. And today, I would have said that that continues to be a good indicator. I was looking for a recession in the middle of 2020, even before the COVID crisis came into being. Now, what has happened now is today, the Fed is said to be thinking in terms of controlling the interest rate. What does that mean? Instead of just quantitative easing, which is buying and selling a certain quantity of bonds, they would be fixing the interest rate and say, we don't want the 10-year yield to be ever more than 1%. And therefore, if it goes to 1.1%, we will then buy a lot of treasuries in order to bring the yield down. And that is called yield curve control. And instead of selling a fixed number of bonds, they are selling you a fixed interest rate. And if they were to do that, then even that one market, which used to provide a good signal, will get polluted by these contrary signals coming from the Federal Reserve. But as of now, it is still a good market to give you a signal. Um, I continue further about indicators. Uh, 
Andrew Yang during the presidential campaign talked a lot about um, how essentially moving we should sort of move past the GDP as our ultimate target for economic growth, and he sort of mentioned things like you know standard of life and you know the age people live to as being sort of better indicators of how our economic performance is because obviously you know the purpose of the economy is not just to be of the economy it's also to serve us you know markets really serve us the best so do you think that we should sort of revitalize the ways we think about um, markets and how they perform into a you know i guess a more human-centered way as he would put it it is a great ideal joshua it has been tried and the french government hired two Nobel Prize winning economists to try to find alternatives to it. Uh, Joseph Stiglitz and Amartya Sen were two professors who were hired to find a way in which you can measure well-being. How well you are doesn't depend on GDP alone. If your atmosphere is more polluted as you get to a higher level of GDP, for example, but the problem has always been, how do you measure the new level of well-being? I would say to you, it is a good goal to have, but it is going to be very difficult in practical terms to find a measure that can serve your purpose. Yeah, I know for a fact, for a fact in South America, certain soccer games will can literally change history in terms of getting countries angry at each other or improving national happiness to cause great benefits for the nation. It's like certain cultural factors which can never be sort of affected by the economy, like a, a soccer game can never really be affected by economic growth, are often even, you know, greater impacts on human happiness and thus would distort, you know, any sort of any sort of measurement of the economy via like happiness figures, sort of, right? Right. It is the same same thing. But it is true of any human being. You are better you are clearly better off. You feel you think you'll feel happier with hundred dollars extra in your pocket rather than hundred dollars less in your pocket. On the other hand, would get, having that extra hundred dollars compensate for a very happy experience doing something else? Then you're you're comparing apples and oranges, and then that is, I think, the problem that you have with a new measure. So, in other words, if you say I'm not, I cannot measure apples and oranges, then I ask you the question: Do you are three oranges and two apples better than one apple and four oranges? So that it, it, they are not measurable, and somebody has to do that. And if you decide that way, I can come and say, hey, that is arbitrary. I disagree with that comparison. I would measure it some other way. And that is typically how it has happened. And a professor uh, during my graduate days, Kelvin Lancaster at Columbia University, had a measure called UTILS, U-T-I-L-S. And what he meant by that was, for anything you do, you get satisfaction. When you have a nice bowl of soup, you get five utils of satisfaction. And then he said, how much would you exchange that for, for a hamburger? And is that going to give you more utils or less utils than what you got from a, from a bowl of soup? So these are all conceptual measures, which are alternatives to a GDP, except that the utils were more at a micro level, at a one-person level, but you can extend it again 
to the macro side, but it's going to be hard to measure. It's a, it's a good thought. Yeah, I know that you know John Stuart Mill, um, who was one of the great reformers of utilitarianism into what we sort of think of it as today. Um, he made a distinction between higher and lower pleasures, where you know, given a a reasonably like intelligent and well mannered person, if they are given two experiences, whichever one they will prefer at any sort of given moment is the higher pleasure. So, um, in the, even when making those sort of utilitarian considerations, I think that a lot of times the the preference and also like the ultimate moral objectivity of the you know, individual instance has to be taken into account. Very much so. Very true. So, what do you think would be a better government response, other than you know the the CARES Act or the Federal Reserve's current actions for COVID nineteen's effect on the economy? If there is to be any response at all, like 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 I know that um you know certain libertarian institutions like um you know the Foundation for Economic Education have even sort of complained that they think that you know the CARES Act or um or even the lockdowns have been ineffective and have actually done too much damage themselves. Um, I don't know very quickly whether there is a it's an effective alternative, and I'll tell you why. That if you do not lock down, I see that as a as a trade off between higher GDP production, higher production today, and the trade off is you're going to have a much higher incidence of coronavirus in the future. And that is what very many states in the U.S. Um, they are going through today. They opened up prematurely, and especially in Florida, you have instances of young people rushing to bars. Of course, when you go to a bar to have several drinks and then be with your friends, you are not at the same time going to be wearing a mask and taking a drink. You are there, you don't have a mask on, everybody is there having a great time, they're all very close to each other. Uh, You're not six feet apart by any means. And they in turn found a few bars were responsible for a massive growth in the coronavirus incidents. So the issue is, do you say that the bar owner, the bar workers need a break Therefore, they should be opened up, in which case they themselves are going to suffer the incidents because they are exposed to all the people who are coming to the bars. And just today, we have had the states of California and New York both restrict the amount of indoor uh, dining that can be done. So the answer I would have is, you need to have some form of protection. For instance, you have the Paycheck Protection Program, which is aimed at helping the salary earners and to companies for retaining the workers. And the issue is that is a temporary fix. It is positive, don't get me wrong, you need that. But if you have that going for six months, during that six months, you should also move toward finding an effective vaccine. What we have done is to have the PPP, Paycheck Protection Program, and rather than use the time given to you to find the vaccine, we opened up the economies and so we worsened the illness. So what are you going to do next? Extend the program for another six months? 
throw another $6 trillion into the economy, <coughs> you do not have a fix by opening up the economy and increasing the stimulus at the same time. So I would have said, provide the stimulus for a fixed period of time, hurry up in terms of finding a vaccine. In the meanwhile, take your lumps in terms of the economy suffering a negative impact. Let me go one step further. The real problem we are going to face is going to be in 2021-2022, and even more young people like you paying for it over the next 20 years, because we are not going to pull back on all the stimulus we have created this year. So we run the risk that inflation picks up, the interest rates shoot up, and there is a flight from the dollar by the global financial community, because even when the economy comes back, you do not take back all that extra cash you created in 2020. And that's the experience from 2008. Ben Bernanke said that the creation of either quantitative easing was a temporary measure. That's what he said famously in December 2008. It has continued on and it hasn't ended yet, more than a decade later. Um, so you think ultimately, though, uh, having a fiscal response is um, right now is more advantageous than than any sort of attempt to just kind of shrug it off and get as much growth to happen as possible? That's correct. You cannot do that. If you want to go for as much growth as possible and open up opening up the economy, uh, the incidence of coronavirus is going to shoot up and the number of incidents, the number of deaths are going to rise exponentially. And again, going back to your previous theme of GDP growth, your GDP growth may pick up temporarily, but on the other hand, the number of deaths would have increased. Is that a better situation for the society as a whole? Yeah, I think it's a it's a good thing to remember that economic growth isn't everything because if we're, everybody's dying, then what's the purpose of having a higher economic growth because the whole point of the economy is to serve us. Um, exactly. So a lot of a lot of futurists have made the uh, the comment that COVID nineteen is sort of accelerating the arrival of a future via you know working from home and necessitating more automation. Do you think that there's uh, you know a lot of futurists also propose UBI as a sort of solution to increased automation and to um, sort of the loss of jobs that are going to happen over time in our economy, especially due to COVID nineteen? So do you think that some sort of UBI or NIT is an effective um, solution to continue on with the, in the future um, for the sake of our economy? I think UBI should be part of the arsenal for the next president. And uh, a colleague of mine working for a law firm in Los Angeles and I wrote two papers for Milken Institute in terms of um, how the universal basic income uh, would help the workers in terms of increasing their skill level because the way it would be done was to give a fixed sum of money like $10,000 a year for every adult. Uh, he or she would be able to use it to go get an education. Even if you are a billionaire, you will still get $10,000 a year. If you don't want it, you can donate it to charity. But the poorer people person will use it for his or her personal training improve the income earning capacity 
and then be able to um, shine better as a result of the UBI being present. So Andrew Yang, by the way, also had that as a central part of his platform when he was a presidential candidate. And I think it makes a lot of sense to have UBI in the arsenal very much. Uh, Yang was my was my you know my pick for president precisely because of this reason because I feel like he's the, one of the only candidates that really felt more into in the future in terms of long term planning. Him and Buttigieg, I think, gave me more sense that they were on top of all the issues in terms of thinking out solutions. Um, so also uh, about another thing about UBI, you know, Charles Murray, um, yeah. the famous economist, he says that the UBI itself would help reduce a lot of the poverty traps. Um, that that normal welfare creates for lower income communities. So, would you agree with him that it helps to reduce the poverty traps in those communities? Yeah, I, I think it would help reduce the poverty in those communities because you previously you accepted the wage that your employer was willing to give you, and you just continued on with a low skill, low wage occupation. However, if you are now getting a $10,000 extra, you can tell your employer, I'm going to work only part-time for you. And in the evenings, I'm going to go get myself an education, a skill uh, in order to improve my, my earning capacity. And so the UBI is meant primarily to benefit those kinds of people that you make reference to, those who are at the lower end of the income scale. Yeah, and also like those people typically um, under normal welfare don't always have the incentive to raise their income because they would have to go off of welfare. But with a UBI or with an NIT, something along those lines, they wouldn't be in the same sort of risk category to lose their, their welfare and they would have the incentive to more to invest in themselves and in their future. Exactly. That is, that's an important point. The related point is that when you get the, when you get the pay, paid the UBI, it is not a handout to you. You do not have to think, and people don't have to attach a stigma to the fact that you're getting an UBI, you're getting a handout, and the rest of us are paying taxes so that you can be paid off. The reason why it's not a handout is because everybody is going to get it in the pop adult population. So I can't accuse you of taking a handout if I get it as well. So that's the, the first part. And second, what we said was, as you do that, a number of deductions that exist right now would be eliminated, and therefore the tax law would also become more uniform, and the fiscal impact of these huge payouts will be kept limited. Uh, while we're on the subject of taxes, a lot of a lot of the proposals I've seen for UBI have included that it, it be paid for via carbon taxes or land value taxes, like the ones which David or uh, either Henry or David George proposed, or um, being paid for via VAT. So, do you think that switching to those kind of tax schemes um, would uh, you know benefit the economy and help for pay pay for UBI uh, more effectively than our current system of you know income and corporate taxes? Uh, you probably need a broader tax base and some form of value-added tax, I think, would be positive. And to, if you were doing uh, polluting the atmosphere with the factory that you run, that you have to pay for a part of the pollution that you cause is also, I think, going to be 
a positive in order to get it done. So what tax you're going to impose would have its own positives and negatives. But broadly, generally, I would say that you need to uh, widen the tax base beyond just looking at uh, income and current sales taxes. And if you are using the value-added tax, it, you, you need to make sure uh, that the value-added tax is also equitable. That, what, does, what that means is there'll be a value-added tax on the expensive suit that you buy. There'll be a value-added tax on the expensive tie that you purchase or the car that you get. But it will not apply to a dozen eggs. It will not apply to milk and bread, which are all considered essentials and in which the lower income people spend a bigger proportion of their income on. Yeah, so a progressive UBI is what you're talking about, right? Right. Um, so uh, what about um, uh, Henry George's land value tax, sort of, um, which he proposed instead of a, a property tax, you know, taxing the unimproved value of a piece of land? Do you think that that's um, a scheme we have to move it into in the future? I know that people like Glenn Weil, um, they propose um, a, using land value taxes even in a more radical way where every single house is basically sitting on like a land value tax-based market no matter what. Do you, do you think that that's something we should start to move into the future as our future arrives? So in other words, if I own a property and I'm not improving it, I need to pay a tax on it? Is that the well, way it would work? Well, it's a, it's a tax on the – it's basically just a tax on the land value if, it, if there's no – like taken as it has no houses on it. So okay. it doesn't matter if there's a giant mansion or a small hut. It's the same size property in the same location. It would be, it'd be taxed at the same rate. So it, it's supposed to incentivize people to you know, grow the value of their land and not punish them for building a house on it or something like that. Right. Right. I, th- I think it is a positive move because right now, if I have a land on which I uh, build a building, the value has increased and therefore my taxes are going to increase. But I'm contributing overall to the well-being of everybody by, by building that building. And I should not be penalized at the same time for that. So I think I would like some form of exempting, if not all of it, a portion of the capital appreciation from the taxation. That is the same principle behind making you want to, to purchase equities and holding it for a longer period of time. The long-term capital gain tax is much lower than your current income because that is an incentive for you to hold for a long period of time and help capital formation. So a lot of the far left, at least have been sort of saying that COVID-19 and sort of the, you know, sort of the effects of it and how the, the rich have continued to sort of gain money while the poor have obviously been left destitute shows a great flaw in the system of privatization and in a free markets. Um, so do you think that, uh, if any at all, some flaws are sort of being presented by COVID-19 in the sort of regard that our economy or our current economic system favors you know the upper classes too much or would you say that a lot of the upper classes gaining is more from the government's action and not from the actions on the private market itself well clearly there is that covid has made a distinction between two separate classes um the class which is the white collar workers and the ability such as myself for instance 
I deal with my clients sitting there. I don't need to go anywhere. I deal uh, Skype or Zoom call or connecting by email and phone calls. I can conduct my business just as I can visiting people in their offices. However, it penalizes those who have to work with their hands. Uh, a medical doctor, a physical therapist, uh, a restaurant worker, a uh, construction worker, and now very much in the news, uh, the workers in the meat parking, uh, meat packing plants, because they work so close to each other and it is not always possible for them to wear a mask. And that is where you have had a huge incidence increase of the coronavirus cases. So I think what it has done intentionally or unintentionally is to make a, div a division between those who have to go to work despite the increased risk to themselves because they have to physically show up at work. And we have had these instances of people who deliver packages who have protested to their companies saying, unless there is more protection, I'm not going to do the work. But they run the risk under the circumstances of being fired if you say, I don't want to work. So I think the, the professionals have come off better in this whole setup compared with the blue collar workers. And that is why in terms of the benefits that we are giving, it needs to be more focused toward the blue collar workers to make sure that their income loss is made up. That is the purpose behind the $600 of extra unemployment compensation, which the government has authorized. That has been very positive. It has helped keep consumption spending up, but here is the rub there. It is going to expire July 31st. And once it expires, they are not going to get any more money unless it's renewed. And these people have to figure out what they're going to do because if they renew it, and at the same time the coronavirus increases, six months from now, we would say, oh, we need to increase it again on December 31st. So we need some way in which the stimulus doesn't become an endless, unending flow of cash. And there is an end put to this virus and how it is going to be done. Um, so I'm gonna move now onto globalism. Um, do you think that there's any risk at all, and I'm a big fan of globalism personally, um, do you think that there's any risk at all of globalism sort of receding due to this you know, virus and its permanent effects? Um, what, do, what can we do as a, you know, as a society and as, you know, as thinkers to defend globalism and make sure that its positive effects are here to stay no matter how you know, tumultuous our economy gets? I think globalism is not dead. I don't think it is going to die. And again, I would refer back, you are too young to know, but I lived through the 9-11 crisis. And as a result of the fact that the attacks took place on the United States, the statements were made um, that this is the end of globalism. We are not going to trust any foreigners. We are not going to, global commerce is going to fall off. I think that fear must have lasted six months and then things were back to normal. So my expectation is, despite all of the statements being made about how the coronavirus crisis emanated out of China and what role the Chinese 
played in it in the, in the in uh, that spreading all over the world you cannot do without china you the supply chains are still very dependent on it and it is just a matter of whether you have to wait for 3 months or 6 months before you go back and then the globalization picks up again where it left off in february march of 2020 um so talking about china and combating china and its sort of aggression on a global scale what do you think a lot of the proposals sort of revolve around um the fight china at least revolve around re-entering the tpp um and i know krogman paul krogman proposed a 25% tariff on china uh you think those are that some sort of trade modification to china either via trade agreements against their partners or via tariff on them would be effective in deterring china from aggressing upon the global scale and the 25% tax would be to bring the chinese costs up to a global level would that be the purpose um i believe that's what yeah krogman justified it under yeah no i i this is what i think needs to be done clearly there was some uh the us multinationals were first enamored uh, they were enamored of going into china and expanding in a big way and then they found increasingly in recent years they had to share the technology they were forced into mergers that they would not otherwise have wanted to make and now there is a i think a fight back to prevent that uh from continuing in the future but i uh what i think takes place is that this is again a part of the growing up of different economies if you look at what happened with the united states or what happened with the uk it was not as if these two economies in the 17th 18th 19th centuries practiced capitalism in a pure and efficient fashion and they they followed the rules of the market and everything worked they did use their monopoly power to extract whatever returns they could get so from the countries which were too weak to fight them back so china is not the first country to be doing that in human history and they will not be the last what is happening now is that the especially with what is happening in hong kong you are seeing different countries react to it by imposing taxes on hong kong uh, by uh, treating it as a secretary of state mike pompeo said today it is just another communist run city it is nothing special about hong kong is what he said so to the extent that hurts hong kong and since hong kong is a gateway to china for a lot of its trade it affects it then you might see a change in attitude on the chinese side that's how it goes the world trade is not a fixed regular passage without a change you take two steps forward one step fa- back in terms of capitalism and the development and then and eventually you move in the right direction i think that's the case but in terms of imposing a tax on all of the chinese goods in order to bring up the cost i'm against it again you know from your study of international trade theory david ricardo's theory of comparative advantage essentially says even if your country 
has a better ability to produce both butter and arms, uh, butter and guns, compared with my country, we can find a way in which you can produce only butter and I can produce only guns. And we'll both be better off in foreign trade and exchanging the goods because I'm able to do one relatively even more inexpensively than you can and vice versa with the other, with the other commodity. Uh, so you don't want to lose that advantage by imposing a duty on all the goods coming from that and see what has happened. In the last two years, we have the history of imposing tariffs on the Chinese and on the US side saying that it is not the Chinese, that it is not the American consumer who's paying it, but the Chinese who are paying the cost. But now very many of the tariffs are being removed because the American farmers are suffering and they cannot increase their production to the Chinese. So I think once you start increasing tariffs, it is a never-ending mutual recrimination war. Neither side is going to benefit from it. Yeah, I know that Thomas Sowell, uh, his birthday was yesterday, I believe. Um, this is being recorded on the 1st of July, so 30th of June. Um, I know that Thomas Sowell, uh, he says that Smoot-Hawley, the Tariff Act, actually was the real cause of the Great Depression. Um and and a lot of a lot of my economic libertarian friends have proposed a a, a constitutional amendment to uh, make it, basically make it against the law for Congress to ever create tariffs. Um, now I don't know that like you know completely shutting the government sort of like that in that regard is at all viable, but I, yeah, I think it goes to show that most economists I've really read right they just think the tariffs are almost entirely a bad idea in every situation because it's very hard to get them to actually hurt the things that you want to hurt, right? Yeah, there may be some instances where you can justify tariffs. For example, uh, if you are only producing a good by polluting the atmosphere, for instance, then you should be able, you should be forced to pay an extra tax to, to, come, to pay for the pollution you're causing. And that increases your cost of production and you produce less of it than you did before when you were allowed to, to pollute. So you might have exceptional circumstances. So I wouldn't do a constitutional amendment to take away any Congress right. I think the Congress should have the right to, to pass the regulations, but you should use it very, very sparingly and only when you're sure that it is going to be beneficial. Um, so also on the, uh, the topic of trade, um, I know that Thomas Friedman is a proponent. He's a proponent of uh, neoliberalism, the school of um, international relations, not the school of economic thought. But his he thinks, you know, according to democratic peace theory, that the more which we, the more which the countries are going to be trading with each other, the more which we trade with China, that um, the less likely we are to go into conflict because we're going to start relying on each other for more and more goods. So you think that um, that's going to hold up that China is still going to be reliant on us for certain types of capital, and we're still going to be reliant on China for production so that we won't actually have any conflict? I, I'm i not saying there won't be any conflict, but I think it reduces the chances of conflicts. If you also have a good economic relationship and if you have growth in tourism between two different parts of the world, all of that reduces the risk of your going into an armed conflict in terms of dealing with it.
Um, also on uh, topics of countries we're trading with, um, in terms of new markets for us to be entering into, uh, Southeast Asia, the Indian subcontinent, and Africa, especially Nigeria, um, of those uh, three markets, I, ones that I, which um, I see really mentioned amongst the most viable for, you know, U.S. economic contact, what do you think is going to be the best long-term um, sort of investment? I know that, you know, India being a uh, democratic nation um, is is a – and also a counterbalance of China is, is a good choice. And Nigeria has going to have a huge population. It, by 2050, it's supposed to have one of the – probably like the – I think it's supposed to have the third highest population. So what do you think of those as, um, you know, emerging markets we should be investing into? I think uh, I look upon demography as an important reason for you to be investing in the in the long term. And you mentioned Nigeria. Nigeria is a country where the average age, the median age of the population is about 19. What that means is that with a country with a huge population, there are so many babies being born that for the next 20, 25 years, they are going to have an effective workforce coming through. And also a consumption base to consume the products which are produced. You mentioned India, and India at the average age is higher, not as low as many African countries, but it's about 29 years old. Brazil is again a young country, 28, 29. Mexico is a young country. China, on the other hand, because they had a one-child policy, the average Chinese is about 37 years old. So, um, but the benefit the Chinese have is that they have such a huge population, 1.3, 1.4 billion people, that even if the number of uh, young people are, the percentage is small, the number is still huge. So all of that means that the countries with a young population and is likely to have a lot of um, positives in terms of the consumer base and productivity growth during the coming uh, during the coming decades so i think it is a big positive for investing in emerging those kinds of emerging markets uh, so are you bearish or bullish on china do you think that um, they're gonna, that they're going to have to you know democratize as their economy grows and as their middle class grows, do you think that they're going to continue to go down this sort of a dark authoritarian dystopian route that a lot of people say, uh, see them going down? You think that they're gonna that that eventually we're gonna have the dream of a liberalized China that uh, Zhao Zhijiang um, sort of described? I think as uh, the country continues to grow and as there are as they have more goods and services they are able to purchase, income levels rise, there will be a yearning for democracy, which I think they have to cater to and they have to deal with. Even though with Xi Jinping accumulating power in his hands, it looks unlikely that the Chinese are going in the opposite direction. I think if you look at it 10 years, 15 years from now, I think you will see them being there'll be more rights, I think, in China 10 years from now than you have today. So, yeah, is, is it like a macro version of what's, what went on in Chile 
as Freeman described, that as their economy liberalized, Pinochet lost power because the people had more choice and more effective you – know, um, they could take more effective actions. Do you think that a similar effect is going to happen in China? Uh, that was one part of it. But I, I used to travel to Chile when even in 1982-83 at a time when uh, it was really under the strong thumb of the military dictatorship. And when you see it, two things happen. One is, as you said, uh, the income levels increased. The free market capitalism, that was the positive part of Milton Friedman's teaching to the people in, uh, in Chicago. They were known as the Chicago boys who were advising uh, Augusto Pinochet. But the negative part of it was Friedman was seen to have condoned the political method and the suppression of dissent that was taking place in Chile for a lot of the time. So in addition to the improvement in the economic standards, I think the Chileans found that they um, they simply ran out of uh, patience. I, I can be in a dictatorship for two years or five years, but then if you look at it, uh, in Pinochet's case, it was from September of 1973 when there was the coup and it went on till 1990, 17 years. And by the time they were ready to make a change, and I think he himself was old enough that he was ready to quit. So, um, talking also about like liberating countries, uh, Venezuela, do you think that uh, there's any possible path for, uh, for Venezuela to liberalize their economy? Do you think that a regime change is going to be necessary to free them from the grip of authoritarian socialism? Uh, Venezuela, I think, has to change. Uh, it was a great, great country. I remember it as where, as a one with flourishing democracy, extremely uh, wealthy uh, in the 1970s going into the 80s. And then it got into the grip of Hugo Chavez uh, populism, and now you have Nicolas Maduro as the president. I don't see a way out because if it is just, there is no way to have a democratic transition in Venezuela any more than you can have in North Korea. If you can think about North Korea having elections and free elections, the people would throw out the leaders. You can't tolerate that. So if I were the leader and I'm, I'm suppressing dissent, I have to keep doing it for as long as I can. And so I think either you have a regime change or you continue with it. I would have thought that if the U.S. had acted properly, which I think it did not, in, in terms of the boycott and in terms of uh, supporting the opposition, um, Maduro should have gone by now. So also in terms of authoritarian regimes, Russia um, obviously is an authoritarian country. And do you, see the, the, do you see any sort of a pressing need for the EU to federalize, both to counter the negative effects of COVID-19, but also to provide a counterweight to Russia in, in terms of European dominance? Um, because Russia doesn't, see, it doesn't really have signs, at least, of slowing down its, slowing down its ambitions, at least. Do you think that there's going to be an increased need for Europe to take a more active role and to take a more central, you know, the European Commission to take a more centralized role in terms of the politics of the continent? 
by taking by referring to the politics of the continent in terms of the attitude toward Russia. Yeah, two towards Russia and two uh, Russia's, which you know, and towards the countries that are that border Russia and are being pressed into its sphere of influence. Yeah, I first to do that, you need European Union needs to have a common foreign policy. Uh, there is a famous Henry Kissinger statement when he was Secretary of State in the 1970s in the Nixon administration, making the statement, "When I want to talk about." European foreign policy, who do I go to talk to? Who do you go to talk to? There is no particular entity. Is it Germany? Is it France? Uh, Italy? UK? Where where do you start? So I think before they can think in terms of democratizing the the grand region, uh, they need to have more of unification in themselves and have more power coming that way before they can expand. Yeah, while we're on the topic of Europe, what, and also, obviously we're talking a lot about COVID-19 in the economy, what Europe, um, what European nations have done um, a good response to COVID-19 and its effects on the economy, and what are the, some things that uh, a lot of European nations have, have done wrong? Uh, well, if you look at it as a snapshot today, most of the large countries have done very well. The incidents have gone down in Germany, France, uh, Spain. There is a bit more than the others. But Italy, which was the start of it all, has come down to very, very low levels. So I think that initially, Italy, like the United States, was slow in recognizing the seriousness of it. And therefore, it spread. But once the lock, look at what they did. They had a lockdown. They suffered a very sharp drop in GDP in the second quarter, and they have managed to arrest it. The United States was late in recognizing, but also we were late in taking preventive measures following that. And therefore, the incidents are growing. So that, I think, would be the lesson that we would learn from the Europeans. Uh, in, in terms of Europe, um, you think Germany or France, those are probably the two uh, greatest candidates for increasing control over the uh, European Union uh, and for being the strongest country in Western Europe. Um, what do you think Germany or France has done well in terms of response, which puts them in a good position to take a more domineering role in the European Union? What have they done correctly? with in, yeah. Well, the domineering role is clearly partly it comes from size. They are the two largest countries in the in the so-called EU 27 on the east side of the English Channel. And that helps in terms of the overall expansion. Done a very good job in terms of productivity growth. I think Germany is far ahead of France in terms of the economic, uh, meeting the economic challenges and growing with it. I think those would be the two the two big issues that I can think of. So uh, thank you, Dr. Srikumar, for joining us here today at Think Critical. Um, I'm sure this has been a very enlightening uh, experience for our viewers. Uh, you have a lot of really great takes on the future, and I think that we, you know, we our politicians need to start li listening to people like you more and more to help us deal with you know, the onslaught of an increasingly dimming future. 
Thank you for inviting me, Joshua. And I think you had uh, great questions on a range of topics. And I've, I'm very happy to have been a part of it. Don't forget to tune in next week for our roundtable discussion. We'll be discussing some of the same things we discussed this week about the future of our economy and about the principles which we rely on. Thank you for listening to Think Critical.